Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on this episode of Afternoon Light, I am joined by Professor James Curran, who is a professor of modern history at the University of Sydney and writes a fortnightly column on foreign affairs for the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to Afternoon Light, James. Thank you, Georgina. It's great to have you on, and today we're going to talk about Australia's relationship with China. We're going to focus on the last 80 years, I think, or 70 years. But of course, this was a relationship that, at least in the modern Australian sense, has been one of the last 200 years and a fascinating one marked by ebbs Mm. and flows and highs and lows. (laughs) And you've written a new book on this, Australia's China Odyssey from Euphoria to Fear, which I have very much enjoyed reading. Thank you, Georgina. Yeah, delighted to be here. And yeah, I think one of the motivations for writing the book was, I guess, the sense that once the relationship with Xi Jinping's China became so difficult to handle for successive Australian governments, particularly from 2017, there was an inevitable focus amongst many commentators and others about those difficulties. And it tended to result in a certain amount of forgetting about this relationship. And indeed, as you say, the highs and lows, but also just how difficult it has been to manage in the past. There has been moments of real uplift. There have been moments where the two countries have even seen themselves as a model for how uh, two societies with very different political systems might get along. But at almost every point, there have been voices behind that euphoria, especially from the 1970s, worrying about what potential problems lie down the strategic road for these two countries, particularly once China started to become strong economically. And then, of course, once it started to flex its strategic muscles more broadly in a way that understandably made a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. But I thought it was worth telling this story about how each of the prime ministers really from the end of the Second World War, more particularly from the time of 1949, have dealt with the China question. Yeah, and it's interesting, as you say, you focused on how the Prime Ministers have dealt with the China question and that focus on the leadership of each successive government post-World War II is a really interesting take because so much appears to be driven by their personalities and relationships Mm. with different Chinese leaders, particularly from really, I guess, Whitlam onwards where there was that direct connection. At the beginning of your book, you extract some quotes, and I did enjoy the one from Neville Meany, who I I think you studied under, didn't you, at at Mm -hmm. Sydney Uni, very famous Australian historian, and you quote him saying, the past is more than a prelude to the present. The past prescribes the choices available to nations in charting their futures. And I thought, quote goes on and is well worth a read in its full sense too, but that importance of reflecting on the past when it comes to the Australia-China relationship For current day leaders, when you read your book, it's extraordinary how much it's rinse and repeat. (laughs) Well, exactly. And I think this was one of the things that troubled me the most in terms of not just the amnesia about this relationship pre-2017, but the rather crude reinterpretation that was being applied to 
previous leaders and how they managed it. I mean, if you believe some of the commentary, it's as if we've been ill-served by a string of prime ministers who've been either duped by the lure of the China market or have somehow been sort of cajoled by the Communist Party into sort of leaving Australia defenceless and vulnerable in front of an existential Chinese threat to our sovereignty in our country. And clearly, I think they're legitimate red lines that had to be drawn by successive Australian governments, particularly in recent years on matters of critical infrastructure and cyber cybersecurity and issues relating to Australian sovereignty. But it's a much more complicated, richer story than a succession of prime ministers seeing dollar signs in their eyes and simply sort of leaving Australia unprepared. I don't think that's a fair appraisal of this relationship, particularly as it started to open up from the 1970s. And look, as you know, too, there was a lot more flexibility, I think, in the Australian government's position in the early 1950s, something which I think a lot of uh, readers will find uh, quite incredible, that this wasn't just a kind of a story of relentless Cold War ideological inflexibility, that in fact, the Menzies government, particularly in the 1950s, was looking for opportunities to recognise communist China privately, let's admit that. But still, there is absolutely no question that whilst Australia did not recognise the People's Republic of China post-1949, other countries like Britain did, of course. Whilst Australia didn't, Menzies and Percy Spender in particular were looking for ways that they could solve this question of recognition. It was difficult, especially when the United States had made it very clear that it didn't want its allies, and Australia, of course, a close ally of the United States coming out of the Second World War, but more particularly after the signing of the ANZUS Treaty in 1951, you know, America was talking about the People's Republic as an outlaw nation, as a pariah. It didn't want its allies to trade with the regime or recognise it. But at this point, when Menzies comes in in 1949, the Australian government did not see the world in primarily ideological terms. As I said, it was inclined to look for ways of recognising communist China. Menzies was privately open to this idea. He believed that the problems of the region needed to have the recognition question solved, that not much could be done regionally unless this was solved. Now, ultimately, those kinds of objectives and plans didn't go anywhere. And publicly, as we know, as the decade wore on, fears were whipped up in public about the threat from communist China, and they had hardened after the Korean War. But still, it is just simply worth pointing out that in that early period, Menzies' view in particular, along with Spender and subsequently Casey, was that if you denied the People's Republic of China recognition and a seat at the United Nations, you're just going to push them further into the arms of the Soviet bear. Yeah, I think that analysis is really not well understood in Australia, that the 50s and 60s are actually marked by Australia externally being cooperative with the United States approach on China, but yep. internally the view was there is an inevitability of recognising yep. communist China. It's interesting when Menzies was elected in December 49, so for the second time becoming Prime Minister, the first time 39 mm. to 41, he did establish the first diplomatic mission to China. I think we were just talking about that before, sending Frederick Eggleston to China in 41. But by 49 in December, he says privately, it will be impossible to postpone recognition indefinitely. It was the question of timing that is important. So, yeah. you know, that's yep. at the beginning of that very long term of government. Yeah. He's already marking out that this is something that will have to evolve and delicately, but it will evolve and will change. But it just didn't happen in his time. <laughs> 
No, that's right. And yeah. I mean, even it's look, Menzies was saying things in private like, look, we may well just have to face the facts of life and recognise Mao's claim. You know, Spender, Minister for External Affairs, four days after the ANZUS Treaty is signed in September 1951, he puts forward the idea of a submission to Cabinet that is basically going to result in the abandonment, or paving the way at least for the abandonment of Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan. Now, he wasn't advocating recognising the People's Republic of China, but that's in essence what the submission amounted to. Now, that was withdrawn on Menzies' instructions, so that didn't go anywhere. I mean, the public service saw problems written all over that. And this, is, of course, as we've said before, is going on at the time of the Korean War, and, of course, that is hardening Australian attitudes, as it is the attitudes of Western governments around the world, that basically their fears about China were right, that China was manifestly and inherently aggressive and that this was going to cause a problem for Western governments. I mean, then you have Spender's successor, Richard Casey. He is completely smitten with Zhou Enlai when he meets him in Geneva, the famous meeting where John Foster Dulles of the United States does not shake Zhou Enlai's hand. Now, the following year, Casey puts a submission to Cabinet. I mean, can you imagine this? He sits in Cabinet and reads all 59 paragraphs of that submission to his colleagues. And, of course, that does not endear him to his Cabinet <laughs> colleagues. It's thrown out. And <laughs> oh, they've got they lunch much to get decide. to. <laughs> no well, that's they. right. That's right. <laughs> None of this sort of going straight for the recommendations and what the minute might become. He read the whole kit and caboodle and the cabinet threw it out and said, well, look, we're not going to revisit this question for a long time yet. I mean, I think Menzies says quite presciently a few years before this, we won't move before the Americans do. But look, I mean, all that said, let's not forget too that Menzies was trying to play a conciliation role Mm. and the role really of peacemaker in the various Taiwan Straits crises uh, throughout the 1950s. I mean, This is a period when conservative governments in Canberra, like their counterparts in the United Kingdom, are somewhat concerned by the way in which the United States is exhibiting its world leadership. These are people, of course, steeped in empire, steeped in the ways of London and Whitehall and the way things were done in the past. And I think they, Menzies in particular, we know, was quite averse to the way that the United States was coming across as a brash upstart Mm, in international affairs, throwing its weight around. He was particularly worried that there was an element in the United States national security community who, at the time of those Taiwan Straits crises, wanted to go for the nuclear option. And, And Menzies was looking for ways to really pull America back from the brink in that regard. So I think that should not be forgotten about the role that Menzies played there. And it's interesting to reading your book about the Taiwan Strait crises, the 54, 55 and the second in 58, where Menzies is advising the US not to go to war over Taiwan and, of course, saying the Australian government didn't think it would be covered by ANZUS. And I reflect that this is still an issue in yeah. Australian foreign policy strategic discourse right. is yep. would we go to war with the United States mm. over Taiwan? Should the United States go to war with China over Taiwan? Has our position changed from the mid-50s? The position Menzies took, it's not covered by ANZUS and you shouldn't do it. I mean, we're 70 years on from then, but still we are debating yeah. this issue. It's a really, really, really serious and hot issue in defence circles and politically is loudly debated too. Yeah. Well, exactly right. And bit by bit, you can see the kinds of rhetorical 
and positional strings that used to kind of tie this all down in the name of strategic ambiguity. It seems to me that certainly in Washington, we're seeing those being sort of gradually picked apart. We've now had at least four occasions on which the American president, Joe Biden, has looked to, I guess, distance himself from strategic ambiguity and make it very clear, if not unequivocal, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defence in the event of an attack by China. Now, what does Australia do in this? Australia too, of course, used to have the position of strategic ambiguity and in many ways it was given one of its clearest articulations by uh, none other than your father, Alexander Downer, Georgina, in 2004. So I think there's obviously some hard-headed calculations still to go on in Washington as to whether or not they are prepared to fight for Taiwan. Mm. Certainly the vast bulk of bipartisan opinion in Washington would suggest that that is the case. Whether or not the American people are up for that kind of fight, I think is another question entirely. Whether or not when push comes to shove, Washington declares that it is in fact worth the risk of going to war in a conflict they could quite possibly lose. What all that means for Australia, I must say, irrespective of my own position, I can't see an Australian government of either persuasion if they are asked by the United States to provide some kind of commitment to that kind of contingency, I can't see an Australian government saying no. Mm. But I guess the question is, what is the colour and quality of that commitment? I mean, is it similar to Mm. something like we've been providing to Ukraine in defending itself from the Russian invasion? Is it providing equipment but no boots on the ground? And that's where there may be shades of grey. You're sort of helpful, but you're giving them some treasure but not the blood. Well, that's right. I mean, it's been made very clear to the Australians from various American interlocutors, both publicly and privately, that there is an American expectation that Australia will be there now I mean, if this contingency takes place within the kind of time frame that some of the more hawkish commentators are suggesting, that is within the next five to 10 years, it's very difficult to see what kind of military commitment Australia could give. We might be able to send the Collins submarines up there and a few fighter jets, but it would be a limited commitment. But nevertheless, look, there's no question that any kind of commitment would be appreciated by the United States. I mean, this has been the way, right, to get Mm. niche commitments from allies. For all Washington's frustration at times about allies freeloading, as long as the flag is there with some kind of commitment, I think it serves Washington's purpose. But I think a lot of this stuff is still to be fully and properly debated in Australia. But we're in an environment now where there are very deeply baked in assumptions about Australia's commitment to America's Asia policy, even though that Asia policy is still in formation. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the shift from the Trump to the Biden administration and very different, right. at least a different style. <laughs> Query whether the policies fundamentally are that different. I wanted to, just before we move on to the next generation of leaders, I did just want to pick apart the notion that Australia's relationship to China is defined in ideological terms or not. It's interesting in 1950, Percy Spender, then External Affairs Minister for Menzies, said, we do not accept the inevitability of a clash between the democratic and the communist way of life. There is no logical reason why democracy and communism as distinct from communist imperialism should not be able to live together in the world. And then fast forward, I think, 
10 years and Menzies is talking about the downward thrust of communist China, that sort of domino effect, of course, that does speak to Spender's concern about communist imperialism as opposed to communism in a domestic context. But still, the Cold War anxieties about communism, even domestic communism, were hot in the 50s, totally hot. And I, I, I think people need to remember that, define Australia's external engagement 100%. And yet Spender is saying, we could live with these guys. You know, they're different from us, but we can live with them. So how do you explain those statements compared to what the rest of the government was saying and, and what we did? Yeah, well, I mean, I think partly it's a number of factors. I think we can't forget that obviously nationalist China was an ally during the Second World War. I think we can't forget the fact, too, that Australian policymakers and certainly officials, but Australian policymakers on both sides of politics regarded the coming of the Cold War, initially at least, as a kind of a barrier for Australia securing its defence and foreign policy aims. I mean, the worry at the hardening of that ideological rivalry in Europe threatened a repeat of the great strategic nightmare that had been haunting the national psychology from the late 19th century. That is, of course, that Britain and the United States would be primarily focused on the Russian or the Soviet threat in Europe and that this would leave Australia alone and sort of loitering and vulnerable in the Pacific. So I think early on, before Korea and then before, as you say, that the communist debate in domestic politics really took off and then Southeast Asia seemed to be and was affected by communist insurgency movements. Before that time, there was much more of a preparedness to look at the world, not through the sort of the goggles of this ideological perspective. Now, throughout the 50s, as I say, given what's happening in Korea, Malaya, what's starting to build up in Vietnam, clashes over the Taiwan Straits, the split in the Labor Party, the debate over influence in the Labor Party and the trade union movement. I mean, the red peril becomes a terrific sort of truncheon with which conservative parties in Australia can really whack the Labor Party with, and they do, and they do it very successfully. But the ideological view and the fear of communist China by the time we get into the late 50s and the early 60s is really the kind of ideological araldite that's holding the American and Australian alliance together. So we've got to put all those kind of factors into the mix that help explain why by 1965 Menzies could use that language. And I remember Menzies wasn't a great fan initially of the idea of the ANZUS Treaty. Early on, he sort of quite dismissively referred to it as something that would be built on a superstructure of jelly. But by the end of the 1950s, he is saying, no, we need to prepare our defence forces to work in close cooperation with the Americans. He knew that the British were not going to be able to get the supply lines right to Australia within any kind of military crisis. So that critical decision that's made in the late 50s then sets up, I think, the cooperation with the United States in Vietnam. And of course, we can't forget in this period to the concern about Indonesian political instability, remembering that, of course, Indonesia had the largest communist party outside of Peking and Moscow in that period. So the idea that Indonesia might potentially go communist clearly as we see in the Menzies government handling of the Western New Guinea issue and the confrontation crisis in the early 60s, all of those are factors, I think, which help explain why by the middle of that decade they were fully on board with the American ideological view. But at the same time, and this is a consistent pattern throughout our modern history, Australia is benefiting hugely from a trading relationship with China. So by October 1962, China's become the largest buyer of Australian wheat. Yeah, that's right. 
coalition backbenchers and the Democratic Labor Party, the DLP, they've labelled that figure and that trade result as a sellout, as morally reprehensible. So again, the sort of same right. rhetoric that we hear today, you, know, you shouldn't be trading with a power you believe their you know, system is ideologically opposed to yours or their activities in other states morally reprehensible. You shouldn't be trading with them, but then we do. And of course, Menzies had this issue over exporting pig iron to Japan pre-World War II, that somehow you've got to find a way of still surviving as a nation economically by keeping up these trading relationships, but then also marrying that with your strategic realities that this country may well be your aggressor. Mm. Well, it was a remarkable characteristic of that decade where obviously the country party could be the most adept at red baiting in public (laughs) and yet very supportive of the trade relationship with China in those non-strategic goods. Now, it's very clear that the Americans in Washington and their diplomats in Canberra are quite troubled by Australia's flexibility on this point and are quite concerned even then that this means Australia is not fully on board with the Western camp. And there's all sorts of chatter amongst the diplomatic American elite about how is it that we can convince Australia that communist China really does present a threat to their way of life. This is what I mean where this history is so complicated. We know that once the trading relationship with China really took off in the mid-90s and in the early 2000s, that there were similar expressions of American concern about Australia somehow profiting too much from the China market and therefore being at risk of drifting into the China orbit. But I think you're absolutely right that in this period, Australian governments did see great value in continuing that trading relationship. They were criticised for it by the opposition, of course. Arthur Corwell, when Menzies made the commitment to Vietnam, Arthur Corwell pointed out what he believed was this complete hypocrisy, that here we were shipping wheat and wool to China, the, the wheat that is feeding the armies of China, and then the and the wool that is clothing the armies of China. And so he tried to point this out in his speech opposing the commitment to Vietnam, but electorally, it didn't have any effect. No, well, I guess the farmers wanted their export by someone. (laughs) And ultimately, I mean, Menzies had a view that the more prosperous a nation became, the easier it would Mm. be to deal with. And there was a hope, I guess, one day that democracy might come, but at least if it's a thriving nation, it becomes part of the international community and is a nation to be least dealt with in a reasonable framework, whereas a nation on its knees can be pretty dangerous. Let's fast forward. So Menzies retires in 66 and we do have a series of liberal leaders, liberal prime ministers after him, but you've obviously focused quite rightly on Gough Whitlam who wins government in 1972 after... (laughs) What was it, 23 years of continuous Liberal government, so extraordinary period in opposition. Finally, he's in government, but he's, of course, been to China before he becomes Prime Minister in 72. Whatever the ideological opposition and battlegrounds there were, basically everything changes almost overnight between Australia and China. It's like the fall of Berlin Wall and the collapse of USSR and, you know, everything just happens really quickly. There's been all this build-up and then bang. Well, look, I think that's right. I mean, Whitlam has a view, what he calls the sort of, what he believes the stultifying conformity of the Cold War, the rigid bipolarity is starting to break down. Now, he, of course, had advocated recognition of communist China from the first moment he got into the parliament. His first speech on international affairs in 1953 had said that we just have to face up to the reality 
that the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union are facts of the international situation that we are going to have to learn to live with. Now, clearly, it was impossible, given the political culture at that time, to change Labor policy. What I think is very clear is that from the mid-60s, and especially through the late 1960s, I think Whitlam is, in a way, unlike the prime ministers that follow Menzies, he's picking up the fracturing of the Cold War consensus in Washington on the whole question of China. There is movement at the end of the Kennedy administration, more fully during Lyndon Johnson's administration. There is a group of policymakers and academics in particular, and there's a number of Senate inquiries and newspaper opinion is starting to shift from 1966 in a fairly substantial way about are we really going to keep China in international isolation forever? What incremental moves can we make that don't reward China for its aggression in the region or its aggression as they believed it in Vietnam, but which still show goodwill on our part and a preparedness to change? There's a much longer history that predates the coming of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger to the White House in this regard. Whitlam is picking up those signs, I think, more clearly than those like Billy McMahon, for example. I think the Conservatives at this time have become so rusted on to the verities of China as the threat and the ideological enemy that they are unable to grasp this kind of change taking place. And then, as we know, Whitlam makes the bold move as opposition leader in 1971 to go to China to try and restart the wheat trade, right, which had been closed down by Peking in response to Australian government's positions, and but also says, if my government is elected in 1972, we will begin a formal diplomatic relationship with you. And typical Goff, in 1971, when he goes as opposition leader, he wants to claim the credit. Once he goes to Japan after that trip and finds out that he's preceded Henry Kissinger by a number of days in Peking, he wants to tell the Americans that he's very happy to be a pathbreaker for Nixon, which is absolute nonsense, of course. But nevertheless, it is a big moment. But I think even Whitlam, I think even he realises, and there's a lot of pushback in the Department of Foreign Affairs at this time, I think he realises that this is not going to be the easiest endeavour for Australian diplomacy. I mean, he does warn his first ambassador, Stephen Fitzgerald. I've got this quote at the start of the book, I think, that the Chinese are hard-headed realists. It's going to be unnatural of them not to take advantage of us or hold us in contempt for apparent weakness. And he tells Fitzgerald that he's got to steer a course between unnecessary suspicion of China on the one hand and apparent carelessness on the other in terms of apparent carelessness of not protecting Australian interests. So there is a great sort of sense of liberation here. I think sometimes that's probably overdone. It's almost, I think it's become part of that narrative that nothing in Australia happened before December 1972. <laughs> Whereas Whitlam himself has acknowledged that a lot of those big changes that he made were building on the foundation of the prime ministers who came before him. Whitlam says that in the parliament. But I think he is aware, as is Fitzgerald, that this is going to be a bit of a slog in terms of setting up this relationship and that it's going to be full of challenges and risks. James, you say he was able to read what was going on in Washington better than yep. the Liberal Prime Ministers at the time, that in opposition he was more tuned into the breakdown and the consensus in Washington. Why was that? Was he privy to conversations or relationships that say, for example, external affairs officials weren't in, in the embassy in, in Washington or prime ministers and external affairs ministers weren't picking up on those cues from discussions with their counterparts in the States. What was it about Whitlam that meant his networks were able to pick up on that sense of consensus breakdown? 
That's a good question. I mean, I don't think he was getting a special inside view from the Democratic Party of Lyndon Johnson or anything like that. I mean, he clearly goes to Washington as opposition leader not long after taking over from Corwell, and he has meetings with LBJ and others. I mean, a lot of this stuff was in the public debate, right? There were Mm. Senate hearings, there were New York Times editorials, there were speeches given by Johnson himself in Honolulu in the middle of 1966, which when you read them today, I mean, it's clear that America is thinking about some kind of movement on China policy. I mean, you have to read between the lines for a lot of this stuff. I don't think he was getting a special insight, but I think it's more the case that his conservative opponents now... Clearly, I mean, they were hampered in some sense politically, in in domestic politics, I mean, by their reliance on DLP preferences. This was one of the things that McMahon, for example, told some of his officials when they were saying to him in 70 and 71, when Billy McMahon was foreign affairs minister before being prime minister, they were saying to him, Minister, we are picking up signs of change. I mean, there was an Australian diplomat in Taipei, Frank Cooper, who was saying at that time, well before Whitlam went as opposition leader, there is movement in American policy. We are going to be left like a shag on a rock. (laughs) And some officials in Canberra were passing this on to McMahon. He said, look, please remember, though, I've got a DLP. Mm. So I think that combined with the fact that there had always been, in some ways feel, you know, sort of come to an understanding of this. I mean, they had based their policy on not moving ahead of America. And on this question of recognising communist China, we need to remember too that Nixon and Kissinger, of course, not only didn't tell any of their allies about this change that was coming, they didn't even tell many in the Republican Party. They didn't even really bring in their State Department people on this. The Secretary of State, William Rogers, was in the dark. So I think it's a combination of those factors which Whitlam had the freedom of opposition. He was able to say things, I think, in this period and give expression to a particular understanding of the world and the region that wasn't having to deal with the realities of day-to-day government. But I think, critically, it's the DLP and it's the fact that America just didn't take Australia into its confidence that explain why he ended up, if you like, sort of somewhat in front of the McMahon government on that question. And then, obviously, famously, Whitlam is removed from office in 1975 Mm -hmm. and Malcolm Fraser appointed as Prime Minister and then wins a huge, huge majority again. So he takes the Whitlam approach to China and despite, I guess, maybe some speculation he might be in a hardcore anti-communist, he actually decides to engage with China positively while using China the counterpoint to the USSR. And that's quite a fascinating way of pitching your policy that I pick the good communist, not the bad communist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's right. I mean, look, extraordinary when you think about the fact that Fraser, when Whitlam as opposition leader went to China, Fraser criticised him as the Manchurian candidate for the next elections. Mm. I think he said even at one point that this man is a disgrace to Australia for going to China at that point. By 1976, he's choosing to go to Tokyo and Peking as his first visits overseas, not to London and Washington, and quite simply says to journalists who ask him about this, he says, well, the world changes. I think there's a big difference, as you say, in the Fraser-Whitlam view of China, despite the continuity. Whitlam saw the end of the Cold War, the virtual end of the Cold War in East Asia as a time of great opportunity and creativity and diplomacy. Fraser, I still think, saw dark clouds in terms of the Soviet Union, 
was worried about Soviet activity in the Indian Ocean, looked at the world much more through the lens of realpolitik and how we could, along with the Japanese and the Americans, use the Chinese to help contain Soviet Russia. And there's no doubt that this is what he proposed on his first visit to Peking in 1976. He said that China was the great imponderable, but he was not going to waste an opportunity and suggested a kind of a quadrilateral pact to help contain the Soviet Union. We know that was leaked. Those details of his conversations with the Chinese Premier Hua Guofeng was leaked during that visit. It was very embarrassing for the Australian government. But I simply say this, again, it's a mark of the new era in Australian diplomacy. Normally, a proposal like that would have been run through Washington first. It wasn't. And so I think it's a mark of the new confidence in Australian diplomacy. It didn't come off. The Dimash came to nothing. It was too difficult to get all those countries on board with such a proposal. But it is still, nevertheless, I think, a very important example of independent Australian diplomatic initiative. Mm. How did the Liberal Party, their MPs and the sort of Liberal Party supporters react mm. to Fraser's embrace of China? I mean, was this hugely controversial or was there an acceptance that this was going to be in Australia's best interests? I think there was an acceptance that the approach that had been taken by Whitlam, that is, in beginning a diplomatic relationship with China, could not be unpicked. I mean, they couldn't turn back the clock. I think there was a broad consensus within the Liberal Party Mm. at that time that you couldn't roll all that back. What I think they did find a bit surprising was the energy and the vigour, I think, with which they saw Malcolm Fraser pursuing that relationship. Now, this comes out in particular at a time when Chairman Mao dies. Malcolm Fraser gives a speech in the parliament in which he talks about the fact that, quote, the renascent China is Mao's enduring memorial. Now, in response to that, the former minister and member for McKellar, W.C. Wentworth, I don't think was going to miss the opportunity here and said that, in fact, Mao was the leader who had made a prison and called it peace and also said that if Maoism persists eventually, there'll be another Genghis Khan and the new golden horde will have nuclear weapons strapped to its saddles. And the reporting of this speech said that Wentworth was congratulated by many of his colleagues at the time who weren't criticising, as I said, Fraser for wanting to maintain ties with China, but I think they were a little bit sceptical of the enthusiasm that Fraser was showing. And You sort of see that in some of the public comments that Andrew Peacock makes as well, that he's not wanting to get too carried away with all this talk of breakthroughs with China or a revolution in Australia's relationships with countries around the world, that they're wanting to sort of just bring it back, you know, a notch or two from some of the euphoria that had characterised the earlier 1970s. Mm. And then we go on to Hawke in 83. I'm going to get my political history right here. I hope so. 83? 83 it was. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Look, it's been in the papers just recently, of course, because um, <laughs> there's been uh, some allegations that he was used by the CCP for, right. <laughs> without his knowledge, not casting aspersions on Hawke particularly. But he worked to build, I mean, really extraordinary close ties with China during his prime ministership, one of the most sort of successful Australian prime ministers in terms of closeness to China, I guess equaled really only with John Howard. Oh, I think that's right. I think that's right. What was it about Hawke that was at the times when China was absolutely engaging and as closely as it could and cooperatively as it could with 
countries like Australia yep. to prove that it could get on with the West? It just right time, right place, or was it something particularly about Bob Hawke? Obviously, I think Hawke was able to forge very close relationships with Chinese leaders at that time who were both reformers. Now, they weren't going to bring Monticello to Beijing, but they were on the path of modernisation and they were looking for assistance and Australia was very happy to assist. There's no question that Hawke understood the gravity, I think, of what was taking place in China, that he, along with Roscano, took it very seriously They saw it as something that was for the broader public good as well as the national good, that a successful China was going to be more prosperous, therefore more stable. It was also going to bring Australia great commercial benefits. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Hawke had the benefit of meeting with the Chinese leader Zhao Ziyang in April 1983, that is a month after he came to office. And of course, that visit had been originally planned to take place with Malcolm Fraser as Prime Minister. Now, Hawke not only with Zhao Ziyang, but with the General Secretary of the Communist Party at the time, Hu Yaobang, develops a very close relationship. And they, I think, appreciate that Hawke wants to have sort of long discussions about where he believes China fits in the region and the world, about the American position, about what's happening in the Soviet Union. I mean, there is no question that he gains their confidence. They do have these extraordinarily long and intimate discussions about the region and the world. There's no question about that. So I think there is a certain sort of hawk magic to that period. He does use a lot of phrases that you can understand why, for example, the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Stuart Harris, was critical towards the end of the decade about some of the language that Hawke was using, whether or not it be the great cause of Sino-Australian friendship or the fact that Australia and China could be models, as I said at the beginning, about two countries, very different political systems, nevertheless showing how you could cooperate on matters of common interest. Ross Garner will dispute this, of course, but there were some who were critical of Hawke for getting too close, I think, for China in this period. But there's, there's also no question this is when the, the relationship in terms of resources and education really starts to take off. And China, as I said, is looking for help along its modernisation path and Australia is quite quite willing to give it. One of the more interesting perspectives I think I found in doing the research for this book on that period, though, comes from a quote that Geoffrey Blaney made. Mm. And Blaney was head of the Australia-China Council in this period. He was reflecting on the nature of the relationship. And he made this comment that at the beginning of Hawke's prime ministership, he said, this is a kind of a freak phase in our history. Blaney said, He couldn't remember a period of 10 years like this in Australia's past where it had felt so secure. And he said, since the early 1970s, and I'm quoting him, a calm has descended, a calm almost unique in our history and our cordial relations with China are a crucial cause of that calm, right? So no point in this period, Georgina, is there really, up until 89, of course, at no point in the early to mid 80s is there any sort of sense that this is going to be a problem this relationship, right? Now, Blaney is quite prescient because he's saying, well, why are we getting so upset about human rights in the Soviet Union but not in China, Mm. right? And he said there are going to be tensions in this relationship over the next 25 years with China. He said, I will be amazed if those relations are as relaxed as they are today. So I think there are important circumstances in that period which contributed to the closeness of that relationship between Hawke and those leaders. 
And then, of course, in 1989, we have the Tiananmen Square massacre and Hawke, yep. he famously cries. But quickly the relationship recovers. Hawke was, of course, very concerned about social justice and human rights issues. I mean, that's part of Troy Brampson's biography wrote recently on Bob Hawke was that, you know, Hawke had grown up in quite a conservative family and then goes to India in his 20s and he's basically transformed into a sort of social justice advocate because of looking at poverty and really believing that he must do everything to improve human rights and poverty and he sees that pathway through the Labor Party. That's a very, very, very potted history and Troy Brampton can correct me and <laughs> fill that out, of course. But no, no. Tiananmen yep. Square, it's a massive human rights tragedy. It's The footage, even to this day, is harrowing and yet the relationship pretty much shrugs its shoulders, doesn't it, and recovers. Yeah, yeah. The Americans are very quick off the mark in getting back to Beijing. George W. H. W. Bush sends his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, to Beijing barely three weeks after the massacre to restart the dialogue between the two countries. It is a sobering and unfortunate fact that in the practice of diplomacy, sometimes on the question of human rights, we know that the principle of the policy is often compromised by the pragmatism of the practice. And the steadiness of Australian policy, obviously there was the initial reaction, there was a freezing of ministerial contact and visits, and Hawke, of course, allowed Chinese students in Australia to stay. But within a year, all of those measures had been taken off. And I think the language that, say, Gareth Evans, as Minister for Foreign Affairs, used in a Cabinet submission after this event really summarises it. And he says at the time, doesn't he, despite our abhorrence, we're going to have to deal with the new Chinese leadership for some time. We can't walk away from China, whether for good or ill. This is going to remain this country, one of our most important foreign policy and trade concerns. And we're going to have to address these realities of no matter who governs China. Yeah, but I've often thought, obviously, that the tears that, that Hawke sheds are no doubt for the tragedy that is unfolding before him. And as you say, the the scenes of that massacre are just shocking and still evoke great horror at what took place. So no doubt his tears were for the great suffering taking place. Perhaps too they were part of his realisation that the beliefs that he had about where China was heading, he wasn't thinking in the 1980s that they were going to embrace Jeffersonian democracy, but he did believe these reformers, Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang, that change was afoot in China, gradually, incrementally, that its embrace of aspects of capitalism was going to lead to some kind of greater opening up of the system. As I say, not democracy in the way we understand it, but I think he did believe change was coming. And so I think part of the tears were clearly for that vision of China that had been lost too. And moving on to John Howard and other Australian leaders, do you think there was generally a consensus that eventually there'd be some sort of political liberalisation with the opening up of the Chinese economy and entering the WTO and or World Trade Organization, the like that sort of it would be capitalism with Chinese characteristics would yeah. suddenly then lead to democracy with Chinese characteristics, for want of a better phrase. Was that the view of the leadership or our leaders? No, I don't think Australian leaders ever bought into that kind of rhetoric boldly as the Americans did. I mean, and there are particular reasons for why the Americans perceived China in this way that go back a long way, to go back to missionaries going to China in the late 19th century and the belief that America could have a special relationship with China, that it could tutor China along the road to kind of democratic individualism. I mean, the language of the 1949 
China white paper in Washington about the loss of China is quite significant in this regard. And, you know, Reagan is using language in the 1980s about this so-called communist country, you know, as he's flying out of Beijing. And, and it takes off more fully, I think, under Clinton in the 90s and even Tony Blair and George W. Bush. I mean, they buy into this. None of the Australian leaders do. I mean, Abbott in 2014, I think it is, when Xi Jinping is in Australia, or it might be 2015, he misinterprets a speech that Xi Jinping gives at the National Parliament in Canberra and says, oh, you know, I've never heard a Chinese leader say democracy is coming to China, but that's universally regarded as a mistranslation. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I think Australian leaders, including John Howard, of course, had a much more pragmatic view. I mean, what's interesting about Howard is he had his own rough period with the Chinese when he first came into government in 96 over the Taiwan Straits and a number of other issues. But he said to Zhang Zemin, let's just get on and do business. We've got huge differences in culture, civilization, history, language, customs, but we can do business. So let's go down that path. I think the Howard Doctrine had two sides to it. And this is an obvious point. It had the relationship with the United States and the relationship with China, but the two sides were not equal. The relationship with the United States was built on common values, history, culture, wartime sacrifice. The relationship with China was a pragmatic conjunction of economic interests. Mm. And it's not surprising that John Howard felt at the time that Australia wouldn't have to choose because, as you mentioned quite rightly in your preamble, Georgina, to this question, you know, this was a China seeking international acceptance. It wasn't bearing its nationalist teeth. It didn't have that snarling sense of wolf warrior diplomacy. And so Howard was able to maintain these two relations very successfully. Look at October 2003, successive days in the parliament. You have George W. Bush address the parliament the next day, Hu Jintao. I mean, that Amazing to me optics. still just stands out yeah. as such an <laughs> extraordinary manifestation of foreign policy, the duality of that period. Yeah, no, extraordinary. And you couldn't obviously in this day and age imagine it. So things have hugely changed since the glory days of the Howard era where we were able to have our cake and eat it too. We didn't have to choose between our history and geography. But clearly China has changed and you were just mentioning yep. warrior diplomacy, much more aggressive in South China Sea and military, obviously the military modernisation has been extraordinary over the last 20, 30 years. We are so globally economically dependent on China so become importer of choice for us, for so many other countries, and it started to be able to call the shots. And, of course, we've had very differing stances on engagement with Asia by the United States, yep. which have made a lot of partners around the region feel very nervous about reliability yeah. of the United States. So lots of things have changed, but how has Australia been able to manage it? Have we been consistent in our approach or do you think some of the problems in the current relationship are down to poor handling on the part of Australia? I think we've been consistent. We've been consistently vocal about what we're doing. But I go back to first principles. I mean, I do think Australian governments have been entirely legitimate in taking the various steps that they have on political interference, on protecting critical infrastructure, on ensuring that our telecommunications and cyber security is as rock solid as it possibly can be. I don't think there's any question that the evidence presented to policymakers by officials was very clear that these measures needed to be taken to protect the integrity of Australia's democratic institutions and its system. Now, on top of that, as you say, there's been 
a lot more aggression in terms of China's foreign policy. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that Xi Jinping, through the Belt and Road Initiative, the South China Sea, the sabre rattling over and more over Taiwan, what's happening in Hong Kong, the tightening authoritarian grip at home. There's no doubt that China has been bending over backwards, I think, in many ways to alarm countries in the region about its ultimate intentions. And this was the line that so many Australian governments took from the early 1990s. Let's have transparency about your intentions. And where there isn't transparency, that's where fear and paranoia will step in. Now, I don't think there's been a uniform response of paranoia from Australian governments in recent times. So full marks to the legislative measures that had to be taken, as I said, to protect Australia's democratic system. Where I think sometimes there's been a bit of a problem is in the tendency of some policymakers and some commentators to shout about it and to kind of declare that Australia is the model for the rest of the world in taking on China. This seems to be a very deep-seated assumption that Australia is at the vanguard of the new Cold War, that Australia is leading the Europeans and the British and the Americans. And of course, there are many British and Americans who've actually said this. I think it's more probably a less exciting example of simply the fact that Australia had to make decisions on some of these questions like Huawei and 5G, political interference and so forth. I think Australia had to make decisions on these before anybody else. And I don't know whether it was a prudential diplomatic strategy to do things. For example, I mean, the most egregious example, I think, which was unnecessary, was the follow-up to the call for an independent inquiry into COVID. Now, I don't think there was anything especially controversial about calling for an independent inquiry into COVID. We all wanted to know the origins of this and what can be done in future to make sure something like this doesn't break out again. But why then Prime Minister Morrison at the time followed it up by saying, and we will send weapon-type inspectors into Wuhan, that kind of thing, I think, was just probably not needed. I think the point had been made, but I come back to the original point. That is that I don't think there's been any option but for Australian governments to take those legislative measures. And we are now in a position where because of the Chinese economic coercive measures that are still sort of on the, that boot is still on the Australian neck, as it were. We've got two Australian citizens arbitrarily detained in China. Mm. It's going to be very difficult to see serious or substantial movement before that coercion stops. And ideally, those Australians are released. So it's going to be a very interesting situation to watch. And of course, the recent developments over Taiwan and the reaction, Chinese reaction to Pelosi's visit despite the fact that this new Labor government was talking about a new tone with China, stabilising the relationship. Basically, I think the new Labor government under, well, it's not that new anymore, but the Albanese government have the same core assumptions, I think, about dealing with China. They may use a different language from Morrison and Mr Dutton, but the core assumptions have not changed. This is just going to be problematic for a long while yet. Yeah, I think, well, like in the United States, the faces on the TV might change and maybe the tone of the delivery might change, but the basic messages are exactly the same. But lots to fill your columns with in the Australian Financial Review, James, and a huge amount to think about when it comes to how we have dealt with China in the past and how it is always a mixture of threats and opportunity and can change so very quickly. So thank you so much, James Curran, for joining me on Afternoon Light Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Georgina. It's been a great pleasure. 
The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.